Well, let me add my welcome to all of you. We're so delighted that you're in this community of faith and learning, and I want to just tell you how much we've been praying for you and uh, just so looking forward to this day. It's one of our largest uh, incoming classes in our history, and we now, um, uh, we're just so thankful for what this means for us in terms of the ministries that we unleashed from Asbury in the years to come. Uh, part of the way that we celebrate your arrival is to have all of you over to our home tonight. So you're all invited. Believe it or not, we're gonna, we will absorb you. Uh, the uh, presidential home is just down the road. I'm sure they have, they'll have buses at probably, what, 5.30 or so? They'll start bringing 5.30 to 6. And you're all welcome to come. We'll have more fellowship together and share some time together. Looking forward to, oh, I'm interested in my wife. Julie, please, Julie, please stand. My wife is here today. Welcome. <laughs> Have you ever read something that the, the minute you read it, you knew you would never forget it? I had that experience uh, 35 years ago. Um, I was uh, just like you. I was a, a seminary student, and I opened up um, an article, Christianity Today. There is a magazine called that. And I, in the, in the uh, CT, there was this editorial that was been written, and it was about a previous article, which I don't recall actually reading that article, but this person was writing a letter to the editor really upset. And they're upset because apparently in the previous edition, they had highlighted some uh, scholars' latest doubts about the authority of the New Testament and about the historical Jesus. And the statement which they said in the, in the editorial, the response, the letter to the editor that riveted my attention was when he said this words. He said, uh, he mentioned how he was just a simple-minded believer and I don't know any Greek or Hebrew and all that, he said. And then he made this statement. To these scholars, I'm probably just a simple-minded fool, but, he said, and this is the phrase I'll never forget, I'd rather be a fool on fire than a scholar on ice. I've never forgotten that. I'd rather be a fool on fire than a scholar on ice. And even then, I thought to myself, wow, that's a pretty tough choice, isn't it? You know, it's like saying, I want to be in Hiroshima 1945 or on the Titanic maiden voyage, you know. What, what are the options before us? Can there be such a thing as scholarship on fire? Well, has God called us to some greater kinds of ways of thinking about this time together? I think the statement that, that, was, that was made in that article reveals an assumption made too often in Christian circles. That is the idea that devotion to God often leads to a warm heart and an empty head. The life of the mind is suspect, and we should be avoid scholarship and interest of devotion to Christ and personal salvation. Put it bluntly, better to be a fool on fire than a scudder on ice. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, welcome to Asbury Theological Seminary, where scholarship is on fire. Amen? <clears throat> Welcome to Asbury, where the life of the mind enlarges the heart. Welcome to Asbury, where the devoted heart helps us to capture 
the mind of Christ. Welcome to Asbury, where the phrase, the mind and heart go hand in hand, is not simply an advertising slogan, but it's part of who we are. It's our DNA. It's our very identity as a seminary. Welcome to the world of John Wesley, where vital piety is married to sound learning. This is the heart of the whole Wesleyan embrace. Welcome to Scholarship on Fire. And if you ever have the privilege of earning a degree from this seminary, and I trust that you you will get there, (laughs) I trust that you'll be a thoughtful, reflective Christian with a heart on fire for Jesus Christ. This has been our history for 93 years. It's often called the Asbury Experience. If you were to take, and I'm sure many of you have done this, if you were to take you know, 50 seminaries at random, you know, Gordon-Conwell, Fuller, Denver, you know, whatever, Dallas, go down the list, Duke, whatever, name, 50 seminaries, and you would pull up all of their mission statements, including Asbury's, and you would ask this question, which one isn't like the others? It is absolutely Asbury's. Because we actually, in addition to promising that we're going to theologically train you we throw in this crazy phrase, we want you to be sanctified and spirit-filled. Oh my goodness, what were we thinking? (laughs) What were we thinking? It's a lot easier to train someone theologically than to sanctify them. And our creditors always say, now tell us again, how how can you do this? But for 93 93 years, we've been doing this. You're not being called at Asbury Seminary to check your brain at the door. You're not being called to give up your devotion and your worship of Jesus Christ as our dean of the chapel made so clear today. This is a worshiping community. That's our primary identity is we are a worshiping community. You're not being called to even keep the two in balance, as famous as that phrase is. Because Wesley was never about keeping things in balance. It was about a a marriage, a nuptial harmony that actually the other is made possible because of the other. Each feeds upon the other. John Wesley was a man who got up in the morning and read Thomas Kempis's uh, Imitation of Christ. He was studying his Greek New Testament in the afternoon and preaching in the brick mines at dusk. That's my kind of man. It is embodied in our tradition. Our text this morning is found in First Epistle of Peter, which was read for us. If there ever was a man who struggled between his heart and his head, it was St. Peter, wasn't it? This was a man who was a hot-blooded fisherman who, he was the one, of course, you know, Lord, all the others will deny me, not me. Lord, you'll never wash my feet, wash my whole body. Peter always led with his heart. He also was a man who learned to bring his mind uh, under the authority and love of Jesus Christ. It was caught in his net, we see this inspiration uh, brought out for us in the, in the Word of God here because Peter actually is the one who talks about uh, making our minds, discipline our minds for action, preparing our minds for action. Peter brings this together. In fact, Peter is writing to a world, you know, a world where the, the culture was hostile to the faith, a world where the culture massively misunderstood the gospel, And it's a lot like the world that we now inhabit, isn't it? And so this is a great book for us today. And I want to just point out three things that he points out in this text in 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. 
He began by saying, in your heart, sanctify Christ as Lord. That's number one, verse 15, the sanctified heart. In your heart, set apart or sanctify Christ as Lord. This is a word that is so crucial to our whole tradition. Not just justifying you through the work of Christ, but sanctifying you through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are Trinitarian here in our salvation. We believe God has a lot of work to do after you've received Christ. And this sanctifying work is part of what um, Peter brings before us. In your heart, sanctify Christ as Lord. It begins in the heart. He actually learned that from Thomas Kempis, I'm sure. In fact, one of the few, in fact, it's the only verse that's found in all three strands of the Old Testament, the Law of the Prophets and the Writing, is this, this, this verse. You'll seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. It's found in Deuteronomy 4, Proverbs 8, and Jeremiah 29. It's remarkable that in all strands of the Old Testament, there's this call that it begins with a sanctified heart. And part of what it means to come here is committing your heart to totally give yourself completely to Jesus Christ and the gospel. There's no replacement for that. Sanctify your heart and Jesus Christ as Lord. For Peter, the sanctified heart is never conceived of in purely pietistic terms. It's never simply something that, you know, is an emotive feeling that you gender up in your life where you say, well, I have these feelings about God. It's not at all what it means. For Paul, for Peter, the sanctified heart, it's really an active verb. It's things that you do, not simply something that you have. It's faith that caused, this is what caused Peter to say on the day of Pentecost to the beggar, rise and walk. Silver and gold I have I none, but in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. That's a person who's been sanctified, whose whole life is filled with the presence of Christ. How much of the courage to, to announce to a beggar that's lame, arise and walk? But the brokenness in our society is profound. And the church must go out and say to a broken world, rise and walk in the power of the gospel. It was faith which Rahab exercised when she hid those spies under the flax on her roof that day. Faith was in the fingers of those men who carried their paralytic friend to Jesus. Faith was in their fingers. They clawed their way through the roof, wasn't it? All those are acts of faith that's what it means. It's God's decisive action working in us and through us. And it can't happen in any kind of disconnected way. It's your whole life. You can't say, I love Jesus Christ as Lord with your lips, and your, your hand is moving a mouse to look at pornography. Those days are over. And you should leave all that behind when you come into this community. Second, Peter calls not only to the sanctified heart, but to the solidified mind. Look at verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. This is where we get the word apologetics from, the apologion, to give an answer for the hope that's within you. Now here, this is the same Peter who earlier on in verse 13 declares, prepare your minds for action. He is asking us to actually come in this community and submit your mind fully to Christ, and allow this community to shape and form the way you think about things. We need a lot of good, solid thinking. Peter was not able to give a defense for the hope that was within him that night, 
that the rooster crowed three times. Peter never forgot that. And he wanted to always be ready to give an answer to those who questioned him. We inhabit a world where there are few places in America where we not realize there is brokenness, massive misunderstanding of the Christian gospel, and a lot of unanswered questions. Now, if you go across this country, I'm not saying necessarily your church, but maybe your church, and you were to just at random choose a thousand churches, five thousand churches, and you were to go and you were to listen consecutively to five thousand sermons in five thousand churches. How about that for an assignment? What would you experience? Well, there would be an extraordinary amount of bland moralizing, cute stories a few funny jokes. You meet a lot of nice people and a lot of sermons that require quite a bit of goodwill on behalf of the congregation to get through it. What you would find a, a wonderful rarity is to walk into a church and hear a well-thought-out exposition of Scripture that was then faithfully applied to some issue that we are facing as the people in this country and the world. It's actually quite rare. The problem is what we've been doing for all these years, in the last several years, is not working. Our culture needs something different. Our, we are in a point of massive political brokenness. Hello? Isn't it pretty obvious? We're in a state of massive brokenness. Is it any surprise to anyone in this room that the, the government, the authorities, the, the political world has no answers for this culture? The brokenness that we're experiencing is so profound, the only answer is a deep spiritual renewal. It will happen through you and your voices. This is the answer. People who know how to articulate the gospel. Asbury Seminary exists to equip you with an informed response for a relativistic, pluralistic world. And the purpose of Asbury Seminary is to prepare you. That's actually the word in our mission statement, to prepare you for that great work. And we'll demand work without apology. I mean, you embarked on a formational and spiritual voyage. And this is the day we like break off the, break the wine bottle over the, we can't say wine bottle here, break the whatever over the prow of the ship. Um, you know, when the Jesuits uh, went to the mission field, they're the great Roman Catholic missionaries uh, the Society of Jesus. When the Jesuits uh, went out as missionaries, they had an interesting practice. They would line them up on the, on the ship, and they had this little ritual they would go through the way the only, only Roman Catholics would do, kind of the, the way they do things. And part of the ritual was to have them look to the left and the right of the, the fellow people on the ship and uh, say to them that in one year, half of you will be dead. Uh, 30% of you would die by uh, diseases uh, in the first year of your time there, and 20% wouldn't even make the voyage across. And they said, if you, are, uh, if you want to leave the ship, do so now. Now, I'm not going to say to look to the left and look to the right and say, half of you will die. 
But I do appreciate the fact that the Jesuits understood this was not the Carnival Cruise lines, though that can kill you too today. Um, <laughs> this was, this was a, a voyage that was costly. This was a voyage that was not taken lightly. When you boarded the ship, you knew that many of you would never even make it to Japan. The, the average lifespan of 19th century missionary to Africa was two years. These are people in their 20s. They literally, it was true, they did pack their things in their coffins often because they knew they would never come back. It's unbelievable. We, we have to recapture that this is a formational voyage that's going to be difficult, it's going to be costly, but the reward is infinite and eternal. And I want you to take it up. Say, Lord, I'm ready for this voyage. You know, when we meet in this kind of place, we, we find ourselves in some mornings, you know, you're, you're clawing your way through the Greek New Testament. But in the process, you see the face of God. Or you, you're talking one night in the dorms over some theological problem, and, and in the process, you discover the gospel renewed in your own heart. Or you, you have this great privilege of, for some of you, preaching your very first sermon to 20 other hapless students who are asked to listen to it. <laughs> and you preach your first sermon, but you realize in the process that God in his amazing, amazing sovereignty and his grace has invited you to participate and collaborate with him in the redemption of the world. And you get to join him in announcing the gospel to the world. Wow. There's no greater privilege than that. And that's part of the, the amazing voyage you're on. Well, finally, Peter calls us not only to the sanctified heart and the solidified mind, but to the sensitized witness. Listen how he ends the last phrase. He says in verse 15, but do this with gentleness and respect. Yes, you commit yourself unto the Lord, Yes, you, are, you prepare your mind for action and you are, make, a defense, make a defense for the hope that's within you, but you do it in a way that shows the power of the gospel at work within you. There's no greater testimony than a life that's been transformed for the gospel. We do not graduate or have any vision to graduate angry people who are angry at sinners we're not angry at sinners. We are not angry at sinners. We love sinners. That's why we're here. They don't even realize how much we love them. We love them more than they know. We're here to love people. We're here to be so captivated by the power of the gospel that we go out as an explosion of the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's what sanctification does. It, it, makes us perfect in love. That's how Wesley understood it. It means that your, heart, your, your motivation for your life is the love of God. And so we love sinners. We're not mad at this culture. In fact, I, I would say in some ways, you know, if, if we ever criticize, and if I have, have criticized the, the liberals for debunking the miraculous and making the church into the glorified version of the Kiwanis Club, yeah, I do that. But I tell you what, I, I'm also just as concerned about evangelical churches that trivialize the gospel and make it into a cheap consumer commodity. We have a lot of work to do to forge a faithful witness of the gospel. And this is not about liberal and conservative. This is about being faithful to the gospel.
in our day. And this is what Peter calls us to. Well, you're here at Asbury because you're being equipped and hopefully you'll realize that we are not in a business-as-usual approach. We believe that we must train you differently, prepare you differently, and send you out in a way that we've not done in the past. And that's what Asbury's been about the last several years. It's been a great project. We also believe that if you come here, we're not, the world cannot be reached by a pastor as a comfortable career option path. If you're here looking for a career, you're in the wrong place. If you're here answering the call of God, even if you have no idea what that means right now in your life, you're right where you belong. We're about people hearing the call of God in their lives and going forth in that way. If you're here because you want to spend time preoccupied with your parsonage, your pension plan, and all of that, then it'll be a disaster. There are many more ways to do those things. This is a way of doing and being in your life that's very different about how we approach our lives and how we want to invest our lives. That's what this is about. We must occupy not the, not the comfortable couches of the country, but the rugged frontiers. This is not about you know, church lights, it's like street lights. We have got to not simply go to churches, go to communities. We have a, a big mission ahead of us that we must embrace. These are the days of Perpetua from Carthage, who although she was still nursing a child, think about it, she was willing to face the lions in the arena, one of the great early martyrs of our faith, rather than bow down to the false idols of her world. These are the days of Athanasius, the great bishop, the one who stood against it all. We call it Contramundo, you know, the, the Athanasius against the world, where he stood up and he had to lovingly say to the church, as many of you will have to say even to your own churches, you've got it wrong. Let's go back and read the text again. These are the days of Augustine. The whole empire is collapsing the Roman Empire, Rome has been sacked. They were, they, there was a 9-11 happening every day in the Roman Empire at that time. Every day, another 3,000 were dying. And you looked out on the landscape, and every horizon was filled with smoke. The barbarian invasions, we call it. It was a disaster. And Augustine, in the midst of that cultural collapse, he wrote that book, The City of God. Amazing book. And I think that there are books that have not yet been written. I know there are books that have not yet been written that you will someday write because you're prepared in this place to do it. It happens every generation of students. You will, you will write that book that needs to be written for our time. These days of Martin Luther, who when the church lost its way and lost its courage, got mixed up with everything imaginable, Luther had the courage to wade out and famously say, here I stand, I can do no other. And the church was changed because of it. These are the days of Wesley, who preached himself out of every pulpit in England. And that, by the way, is the context of his famous line, therefore I've concluded, he said, that the world is my parish. 
He got it. He totally got it. That the mission of the gospel is greater than any of the institutions that we fight about. And we must be a part of that great movement. And one of the things I love about this community is this is a community, we have over 90 different denominations here. People from all across the, the global church here. We represent a wonderful global movement that God's unfolding in our time. So welcome to Asbury Theological Seminary, where the head and the heart go hand in hand. Welcome to Asbury Seminary, where you're we equipped to be much more than a fool on fire. God has not called us to send out fools on fire. God's called us to something greater. You've been called to be theologically educated and sanctified and spirit-filled. That is our mission in your life. And we're going to make you miserable till that happens. <laughs> Just kidding. I hope it's a joyful, I really pray it's a joyful enterprise. Uh, my experience was difficult, challenging, but it was joyful. It was fulfilling. It was amazing. You would go home at night and your head would ache and your heart would ache for the things that God taught you and you learned. I want you to go forth someday from this place to spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. That's how our statement ends. I love that statement. To spread, it's like spreading peanut butter. You know, spreading scriptural holiness throughout the world. So we cover the whole world with peanut butter. <laughs> Hopefully, you know, the crunchy kind. Okay, I better wrap it up. <laughs> we are so glad you're here. And I do pray that the sanctified heart, the solidified mind, and the sensitized witness becomes the real marks of what it means to be an Asburyan, because you're now part of this great Asbury experience. And we'll go out someday and we'll give them heaven. Amen.